This episode of Everything About Hydrogen is brought to you by Biotech Onsite Hydrogen. It's official. The hydrogen economy is here. The global transition to clean energy is gathering momentum and it's clear that hydrogen will play a critical role. Biotech offers modular, scalable, and rapidly deployable hydrogen production systems through sales, rentals, leases, and gas as a service to customers worldwide. If you're interested to learn more, visit biotech.us to find out how Biotech can help you produce low-cost, low, or zero-carbon hydrogen today. From the Hydrogen Media offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I am Andrew Leadham, General Counsel at Biotech, and joining me from a few blocks down the road here in Washington is Patrick Malloy, Senior Associate in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at the Rocky Mountain Institute, recently rebranded as RMI, and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, who, as always, is calling in from London. On today's episode of Everything About Hydrogen, the EAH team is excited to sit down with Craig Knight, CEO of Hyzon Motors. Hyzon is leading the way to decarbonizing the heavy transportation sector and has captured imaginations and headlines in the past year as they have announced bold strategic initiatives and plans to go public. We are very pleased that Craig made the time to sit down to talk with us about how hydrogen is changing the face of commercial and heavy transportation operations around the globe. But before we get into it, we'd just like to remind everyone that if you have any questions for us here at Everything About Hydrogen, please shoot us an email at info at h2podcast.com or give us a shout on Twitter at, at about hydrogen. Let's get this episode started. All right, guys. Welcome back. How are we doing? Let's start with you, Patrick. How's life? How are things? How's skateboarding? Skateboarding is amazing, as you know. For some reason, all I can ever think of is Tony Hawk, isn't it? Is, is it yeah, Tony Hawk? Say, yeah. Patrick, Tony, <laughs> Tony Hawk, Malloy. Yeah, there you go. I'm channeling the hair at this stage, so, you know, why not? That's right. It's a good look. What about you, Andrew? What's what's your indoor, outdoor uh, workout regime? Uh, I've been making it around the block to uh, the local coffee shop as a daily. Uh, that's pretty much. Uh, I can see you've got something on your table that looks like uh, you know half the size of a door. I know the Americans uh, like that. It's a giant coffees. American iced coffee. Yep, yep, yep. You know, gotta keep with tradition around here. How about yourself, Chris? It's actually getting uh, finally a bit warmer in the UK. I've been reliably informed by um, the foremost experts on UK weather, aka the London Black Cab community, that uh, the wind has moved from an easterly wind from the Arctic, which made it cold but dry, to a westerly wind from the Gulf Stream, which makes it warm but wet. So, um, you know, we're, we're all excited about being outdoors and wet now instead of being outdoors and cold. So that's, that's a real positive <laughs> movement in the UK right now. Yeah, yeah. Who are who are we to uh, to doubt the uh, the London cabbie community? Frankly, so uh, who who are we? Do we want some actual uh, some actual renewable news before we dive into the hydrogen one, Andrew? Yeah, yep. Fire away. Do you have something on, on deck for us? Uh, I had three quick ones, which I'll fire out. So first three quick one. Quick ones. Three, three, quick, three ones. quick ones. Note, note, Patrick. He said quick. They will be quick. First one. First time ever EU ETS price cleared fifty euros a ton was in the last 30 days, which is amazing and really exciting. Second is Ryanair were reporting the FT saying that they want to do 15% of all fuel from sustainable aviation fuel, paying two to four times premium, which also is game-changing for aviation. And the third one was a whole group of British retailers turned around the other day and said, we are not going to buy any goods from uh, Brazil anymore if they push ahead with their current deforestation plan. 
um, and would completely rule out supply chains. So three really good sustainability wins in the last month. All right, that was quick. Actually, wasn't wasn't prepared to have to respond to that. <laughs> I'm entirely taken aback, really, to be honest. Those are those are great developments. Are there any one of them that you want to highlight as the as the key development amongst those three, Chris? Given our limited time, uh, I guess the the one that's quite key is uh, if you remember the discussion we had with Sanem um, and the conversation around using you know green hydrogen from solar and actually you know the walkthrough on economics and how you get that to parity with coal and gas. Well, fifty euros a ton basically means that actually there isn't a business case for using coal or gas or natural gas for power generation in the UK if that if those numbers are correct. At fifty euros a ton and above, we're already there. Um, and that is quite significant. And most companies and actually most governments had forecast we weren't going to be at 50 euros a ton until 26, 27. So that's that's a really big win. Yeah, it's a, it's a top one, right? Like I'm thinking of all the models that we've seen over the years where the $50 a ton target and then the $20, $50, a ton target. You know, if we're seeing that today, that, that has a material impact. That's pretty, it's pretty substantial, right? Agreed. Shall we move on, shall we move on to, uh, to hydrogen talk, guys? Hydrogen trucks, I think, is is the one. Hydrogen trucks, even better. We have uh, Craig Knight from Hyzon with us today, which is uh, an exciting get for the podcast. Patrick, want to give a little bit of background on Hyzon and uh, and why we should all be excited to have Craig with us today? Yeah, I suppose Hyzon Motors is a, uh, a fuel cell electric vehicle um, and famously already has some trucks on the road and like some... Uh, notable uh, alternates, uh, ones that, that have been prominent over the last year, but, um, you know, have been very prominent for the last little while. Obviously, they are a business or a follow-on business to Horizon Fuel Cells. And as such, you know, this is an interesting conversation given the kind of vertical integration of the technology into the, the point of end use, which is something we don't see or we haven't seen an awful lot of, but it's starting to happen across other sectors and other spaces. And yeah, they've 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 been uh, proactive. They've been broadening their their reach and scope. And uh, I think we'll talk to them about their plans for expansion, their financing plans, and a few other of the the major interesting opportunities that they have uh, they've got coming up. The other thing, of course, that is just uh, worth flagging is again, this is like a this this is a a provider of forty four ton fuel cell electric vehicles. I mean, they do other vehicle classes as well from Heisen, but um, I think that's just important because there are not really a lot of people in the space as yet that have systems of that. Um, and I think it's particularly interesting because we are seeing so much more interest at the moment in that particular weight class. Um, I think you know a lot of people have felt more comfortable about commercializing smaller scale commercial vehicles. So. You know, the kind of light vans, you know, up to three and a half tons. We've seen a lot of battery electric options and quite a bit around fuel cell solutions there, but there still is not a lot of uh, activity yet on the 44 ton beyond players like Heiser, Nikola, uh, and a couple of others like Brandon Norman from H2X and even, um, you know, some initial sort of moves from Daimler and Volvo. So it'll be good to get them on, good to kind of understand. And they've also got a slightly different expansion model. Um, you know, they're working with companies like Hiringa Energy in New Zealand, and they're working with Holthouse in the Netherlands, so not just trying to do everything in-house, um, which actually is quite different from certainly companies like Nikola. So be interested to kind of see why they went down that route as well, I think. And uh, and I don't know, Andrew, are you, are you guys able to actually go up to their site in New York anytime soon? Because they've got, um, that's going to be their new big Heisen factory, right? Isn't, is it Rochester? The new uh, headquarters, right? There. Yeah, it, I, it's got a, the, the town itself has a name, which I'm not quite, we can ask. Craig, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce the name. I think it's like Hanai, Hanay, something like that. But yeah, outside Rochester, upstate New York. Yeah, I always, I always like that area. 
Yeah, uh, maybe maybe one of these days. I've not yet received an invitation. I don't know about Patrick, but uh, hopefully one of these days. Maybe we can uh, maybe we can get Craig to give us an invitation <laughs> somehow during this call. It, it's an interesting area, upstate New York, because you know I, I obviously complete nerd and and probably need a life outside of hydrogen. But um, I, I like the thing I like about upstate New York is the fact that as an energy place, it's fascinating for like energy and U.S. economic history because it was the first place in the U.S. that made commercial sense to actually manufacture aluminium because you had all the hydroelectric power and it was extremely low cost. And so that's why all the U.S. aviation industry was originally in upstate New York. So there's quite like an interesting area for like economic renaissance, I guess, of, of industries um, or the birth of new industries, even if they don't maybe keep them for, you know, 100 years afterwards. But you're right. That was one of the nerdiest things I've heard in a long time. But that's great. I'm, I'm delighted. I don't know what aluminium is, but uh, I'm sure if, if we're producing aluminum somewhere, I'm, I'm sure it must be upstate New York. Andrew, remind me, what language does uh, the United States speak? American. Okay, well, that's fine. I can, I can live with that. American. All right. We're there. All right. All right. Now, guys, is it okay if we try and get Craig on the line? You guys on that Yeah, I think we'll we'll have to. All right. Okay. Let's see what we can do. Craig, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate you making the time. Lovely to see you again. And uh, if we could just uh, jump right in. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about Hyzon's history and how it came to being and uh, maybe a little bit about yourself as well? Well, thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here and join the Everything About Hydrogen podcast. I have listened to quite a few of your podcasts and have enjoyed enjoyed them very much. So thanks for the opportunity to be part of it. In terms of myself, my uh, background, my involvement with hydrogen goes back to the late 90s when I was working for a chemical company looking into some clean tech type um, activities and doing venture investing and hydrogen fuel cells were one of the spaces we evaluated as a as a, an area of interest to potentially look at some tangential business activities on behalf of our employer. But um, they chose not to pursue that area of technology. But myself and our Hyzon chairman, George Gu, actually thought the space was very interesting and over a period of a few years established the parent company of Hyzon called Horizon Fuel Cell Technologies. And so that company was set up in Singapore, but over the years, uh, operations were predominantly in China, and that's where you know the burgeoning market for, for fuel cells was. And Horizon was really set about, set up to pursue commercialization of fuel cells because we could see it was a relatively old technology with very little commercial relevance uh, at the time. And really, we were focused on commercialization and we found a number of sectors that were quite interesting and um, were able to establish operating you know, capabilities that delivered fuel cells to customers and had them pay us money for them. And we were able to keep reinvesting the money we were making along the way. So we're a pretty unusual company in the fuel cell space because we kind of grew up by eating our own cooking. And um, a number of years ago, the commercial mobility sector uh, started to look very appealing and with quite a few activities in China, Horizon was able to become very active in developing and supplying fuel cells for commercial vehicle applications. And frankly, going back two and a half to three years, as we considered the internationalization, the global expansion, if you like, of some of that business experience that was gained mostly in Asia, um, near, well, mostly China, nearly all Asia, 
it was apparent that the rest of the world was in quite a different place to China in terms of readiness to adopt fuel cell powertrains for mobility. China, as everybody knows, is a very advanced, uh, electrified you know, mobility market. And the parent company Horizon was able to have quite some success in selling powertrains into vehicle OEMs. And frankly, internationally, major vehicle OEMs were not really ready to embark on, you know, fuel cell adoption for, you know, the, the bulk of their vehicles. So that's why uh, we decided to establish Hyzon Motors. And we realised you need a very different business model. You need a very different balance sheet, set of resources and manufacturing capabilities to pursue a heavy vehicle mobility model. And so that's why we decided to look for investors that specifically wanted to get behind that downstream application, if you like, for heavy mobility. Then uh, Hoson Motors was born at the beginning of 2020, um, but with an almost two-decade pedigree background, if you like, uh, in the technology. And so that's kind of the backstory and how we got here. And frankly, the last you know 18 months have really all been about positioning the company, finding investors for the company, establishing a strong team, which is ongoing. We're continuing to hire, you know, quite uh, aggressively. And we're really now positioning Hazan Motors to start scaling up activities, you know, fairly dramatically from the second half of 2021. So Craig, maybe maybe a quick follow on. What what is the relationship between Hazan and, and Horizon today? And, and how's that uh, kind of evolving together, shall we say? So the core technology within the fuel cells was developed by Horizon and has been partially assigned to Horizon Motors so that both companies have rights to use and exploit and so on the technology. And then there's a commercial agreement around access to markets. So so Horizon Motors is the mobility, has the mobility market focus and in the target markets of North America, Europe, uh, Australasia, and a few others, um, Hyzon Motors uh, also has the exclusive right to sell powertrains into mobility applications under this commercial agreement. So both companies can make and sell fuel cells, but the mobility application is essentially under Hyzon Motors. Horizon enjoys the value creation within within Hyzon Motors because Horizon still owns more than half of the company frankly. And we're, you know, we'll talk more about uh, our capital raising and so on, but even going forward after the current uh, current fundraising and so on, Horizon Fuel Cell will still own more than half of the company. And so there's a, there's a strong alignment there in terms of interests. And um, Horizon Motors is, you know, squarely focused on the vehicle applications. And so therefore, all of the optimization of the core fuel cell systems and you know, the, the development and optimization of all the electric drive and so on. This is all under Hazel Motors. And, um, you know, there's going to be, you know, a lot of development focused in the North American market. So we have, you know, three U.S. facilities now and we're building out teams to, to execute um, for the, you know, the heavy mobility applications. So, Craig, I mean, um, actually, one of the things that I have on my desk and I've had it for a little while is one of the um, Horizon fuel cells, one of the small little uh, little ones that you guys little, used to do. Little um, blue square ones? 
it's that little blue square ones absolutely and of course you know one thing that i always remember is that actually those little blue square ones a by the way are the most fantastic prop because almost no one's ever seen what an electrolyzer and a fuel cell looks yeah, like yeah. and the nice thing is it doubles up as both so it's actually a really good thing for showing people but the other thing i remember is that when you you know if you go online and try and buy the kits you still buy them on amazon they yeah. actually um, most of the time they were tied to mobility from a very early stage right so you had you know i think there was a little car that would drive around the there was a little plane yeah, exactly. The H racer. There you go. Um, so, you know, obviously cars and automotive was on the radar for a little while, right? So perhaps um, be interested to see kind of why Heisen, when you decided to create Heisen, the focus kind of was on their heavy duty trucking space. What kind of inspired the interest in that? Um, you know, and why, you know, why as the first market did you want to kind of go into that kind of heavier commercial segment? Yeah, uh- Great questions and a bit of a bit of a look back there too, Chris. So obviously um, the very early work that the parent company did, a lot of it was around miniaturization and trying to understand how to kind of re-engineer and, and redevelop materials and components and sub-assemblies to make fuel cells affordable because they were frankly ludicrously expensive. Now, partly because nothing was in serious production, everything was kind of bespoke. And so one of the things that happened early on is we developed these these little uh, low-cost fuel cells. And frankly, it was an investor who said to us, you know, why don't you why don't you sell those things that you're using to demonstrate that the fuel cell works? Because we just basically used a dismantled toy car to prove that the fuel cell was doing something because you can't see the power coming out of a fuel cell. So, you know, one of the engineers bought a $5 toy car and pulled out the <laughs> pulled out the battery and, and put the fuel cell into it and showed that it made the energy to drive the car around in, in a meeting for an investor. And it was the investor's idea that said, well, that's it. That's kind of your first commercial product there. This is going back, you know, a long time, obviously. Um, and so, yeah, that kind of um, bore out the, the H-Racer product, which... Incidentally, ended up on the cover of Time magazine in 2006. So Horizon Fuel Cell was featured as a, an innovator in, of all things, transport, autom- you know, in, in the automotive sector, which we thought was quite funny because we were just trying to demonstrate the, the core kind of fuel cell technology. But because it was embodied within this little tiny car, you know, it was a transport innovation. But it's that power of visuals, isn't it? I mean, you know, how, how important yeah. it is to see it. And I remember going to Hanover Mess six years, uh, four or five years ago, and uh, seeing someone had a bus. Developer had like a big, you know, made up kind of little town, and they had a hydrogen bus and a little electrolyzer, and it was a tiny little gimmick. But everyone was like, "Yep, I get it." Yeah, that's right. the um, The value of of see and touch and feel is is staggering. So. Yeah, obviously, Horizon sold a lot of those little H-Racers and all those other various products over the years. and But they are very yep. educational, informative, and so on. And, and we see them used all around the world by everybody, naturally, right? So they're still out there. Uh, so a very long-lived product. And as as uh, George always jokingly says, he says, he says, if anyone wants to know the best-selling fuel cell car, it's the H-Racer. <laughs> best-selling fuel cell car. <laughs> That's quite a thought. in the hundreds of thousands, you know? <laughs> So um, obviously that's a bit of a joke, but the other thing that 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 um, the look at the Atracer does is it it also embodies our our kind of vision that we always had, and 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 our mantra was always think big but start small, and we always had a a goal to have a big impact with our the fuel cell technology we were developing and a belief that we could do something really good with PEM fuel cell technology. But you really do have to start small. We see a lot of companies and 
research and development programs and so on that kind of fizzle, they crash and burn because they've had such big ambitions, but they've never learned to walk. So they're trying to, you know, they're trying to run at an Olympian pace without ever walking. And we think that that's one of the things that has differentiated the Horizon Fuel Cell journey and which differentiates the DNA inside Heisel Motors is that we really do learn how to walk first. And, you know, we, we just progressively improve and learn how to go faster and faster. Now, coming back to your question about focus for, for mobility, having been around hydrogen a long time, you know, we tend to have a uh, use our innate judgment on a few of these things. And we just concluded a long time ago that hydrogen suited commercial mobility. Um, and it, we weren't really convinced by the early focus of um, Toyota and Hyundai on the passenger cars, for example. It would have been easy to be led. But, you know, we, we stuck to our conviction that, that the very high utilisation uh, scenarios of commercial transport made so much more sense for hydrogen. So we have been focused squarely for quite a few years now on developing the fuel cells that meet the commercial mobility demands. So that means a lot of power and that means a lot of, um, you know, kind of resilience, and, you know, to provide reliability and then finally, the lifetime considerations. These things need to last a long time. So the design choices, the material choices, the component choices, all these things, they're influenced by knowing your your journey. That old saying of, uh, you know, begin with the end in mind kind of thing. We really made all the choices along the way, commensurate with the goal of powering heavy trucks that are going to be used 24 hours a day, right? And we do believe that that results in quite a different product with a different, you know, set of characteristics than setting out to build, you know, the best stationary fuel cell or the best passenger car fuel cell or whatever, it's because you've got a different end in mind when you make your choices. And we really, you know, now I think have been reasonably well validated, you know, uh, externally by you know, a lot of the work that's gone on uh, in recent years that suggests that the, the heavy vehicles are you know, definitely a better fit for hydrogen. And Craig, what uh, what are the major barriers to accelerating deployment of hydrogen fuel cell vehicles? I know that there are a lot of barriers <laughs> in a market like this. It's a, it's a lot to tackle, right? But uh, if you could maybe address sort of the key ones that you guys are confronting and and how you guys are tackling those, that would be that would be wonderful. Thanks, Andrew. Barriers, you know, it's the uh, age-old chicken and egg problem, which everybody uses uh, to refer to the problem. We look at this as a um, as an ecosystem development. So you might have seen recently that Hyzon announced the Hyzon Zero Carbon Alliance. One of the things we found in interacting with some of the early customers is that there are sometimes unanticipated challenges with you know, pursuing deployment of vehicles. This can relate to simple things like like uh, customs clearance, um, import treatment, uh, various compliance issues, um, the very big, hairy one of, you know, infrastructure and availability of hydrogen, of course, but simpler ones, you know, like getting an insurance policy, you know, that'll cover your vehicle when your insurer has never heard of hydrogen and all this sort of stuff, right? So there's, there's just many things that can trip you up. And so the idea of the Hyzon Zero Carbon Alliance is to, to have parties get involved and support the principles of, of identifying and and resourcing and scoping basically projects because this is not just supplying a vehicle. You have a project every time you want to deploy it. 
because hydrogen availability and all those other things I mentioned are kind of different everywhere you go. So when we do a project in in Sydney, Australia, versus doing a project in San Diego in California, they're very different factors, right? And so you need to be able to pull on third parties who have particular expertise and capability in certain spaces that enable you to help the customer have a viable working fleet solution, which requires an ecosystem. So in in our view, um, the, the effective way to make a lot of this um, fleet uptake happen is to make it easy for the customers by providing kind of a, you know, semi-autonomous, you know, ecosystem around around the fleet deployment. So we can take financing partners and insurance partners and, and hydrogen production partners and all that sort of thing into discussions that can result in, you know, a process for a customer that it makes it a bit easier to get, makes it a bit easier for them to get started. So, you know, obviously infrastructure is a big, big constraint and, um, you know, we're really happy to see some of the advances in Europe, for example, but in, in many parts of the world, you know, we really have to bring this project capability around an ecosystem to the customers so that ma- they can make this choice. Yeah, Craig, just to, to maybe follow on that, you know, we've seen quite a few and some in some cases very large uh, hydrogen production announcement, you know, project announcements everywhere from from Saudi Arabia to to Australia, right? So you, you've got this kind of build out on production capacity. But, you know, when you think about these projects, does that influence the kind of target market areas or where you guys are thinking about rolling out or deploying? Or is it is it very much kind of back to that fundamental project approach that you just kind of uh, laid out? Uh, obviously, any kind of um, substantial project, Patrick, on hydrogen that delivers a attractive, you know, cost on the molecule is very interesting to us and you know the saying we always use is you know the 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 localizing force of hydrogen is extremely strong so if you have an attractive cost of production of hydrogen in a certain location um take saudi arabia your example there um obviously you know that got us very interested in saudi in saudi arabia when they're talking about very large scale green hydrogen production resulted in a bunch of conversations with a few third parties and you may or may not have seen a recent announcement as well where we are working with neom the new you know zero emission city to specify scope and deliver you know um, vehicles for the even for their build-out project for the zero emission city because you know their their carbon footprint includes how they build the city right so you know we're quite involved with with that project and it's obviously pretty attractive when there's a, a substantial investment in green hydrogen as the the base for that then obviously you know we see major renewable electricity investment in places like like australia and we see you know opportunities for pretty large-scale hydrogen production from some of those and definitely that makes it interesting to pursue you know vehicle deployment uh, opportunities but we're also big believers in in local hydrogen production close to the point of consumption using some of these distributed means of production and recently you know we've talked a bit about waste to hydrogen and Waste is everywhere. As as one of the partners in waste processing says, he, he likes to say, anywhere there are people, animals, or plants, we have feedstock. And if you think about that, that's kind of makes sense, right? So with all these waste-based processes, you know, you can get to hydrogen um, reasonably cost-effectively, and you can do it close to the point of consumption quite often because where you have waste is where you also have demand for vehicles. 
um, you know, population bases and that sort of thing, and and farming and agricultural processing bases. This this results in a demand for the for the vehicles too. Um, so we're big believers in local hydrogen hubs that provide uh, hydrogen close to the point of consumption uh, uh, for that hydrogen, and also we do you know we do have an eye towards large green hydrogen production plans because to us that's an enabler because frankly in commercial vehicles you know the whole of life costs the total cost of ownership the whole of life total cost of ownership fuel is a bigger chunk than anything the only thing that costs more to run a vehicle is a human so it's only the driver that costs more than fuel over the life of the vehicle and fuel costs more than the capital for the equipment in a in a typical commercial vehicle total cost of ownership so fuel swings TCO considerations. So the price of the fuel is super, super important for the viability of fleet substitution. So Craig, I'm going to just dive in here because I think these are some questions that everyone always wants to ask. And as we've got you on the call, I'm going to ask them. So uh, you're absolutely right in terms of total cost of ownership stack, but maybe we go through a few other questions too. So, you know, for commercial vehicles, it'd be interesting to get a sense from Heisen what you're looking at in terms of a kind of vehicle lifetime. And if you're even comfortable talking about things like a stack lifetime, you know, because it's if you look at Hyundai, for example, their stacks are meant to be five to 6,000 hours, I think, from the Nexo. And I think most of their commercial vehicles are using the same stacks. Um, if you look at the Ballard ones, again, it's somewhere between 20 and 32,000 hours for the buses. But again, it's a slightly different use case. So be interested to kind of hear on the so stack and lifetime side um, and maybe then the other piece efficiency, because that's obviously a debate that comes up continuously is what is the efficiency of the vehicles. And if you're just looking at price price parity, actually that misses a huge piece of the story, which is, yeah, OK, maybe I'm slightly more expensive than diesel on a fuel by fuel basis. But if I'm double or you know, 30, 40 percent more efficient, actually... It's not quite the same thing. So if you can maybe talk about those two pieces. Yeah, cost structure is always obviously a big part of the discussion because at the end of the day, if we're going to create this tipping point uh, around going to zero emission, we've got to do it with economics. There are early adopters out there who will pay more for for their place in the queue, you know, to be one of the first users of the technology and, and an early learner around it and build their model, like give themselves time to build their models around it and all the rest of it. But but for the broader adoption, really the economics have to be attractive, you know. Um, so we are very focused on that whole of life cost that is competitive uh, with diesel, uh, as you mentioned, Chris. And frankly, the that related question around the, the fuel cell and how long it's going to last and all the rest of it. This is a significant factor in the total cost of ownership because if you're having to replace the fuel cells after a couple of years of operation, two, three years of operation, this is a significant cost in your, say, five to seven year life of a vehicle. So a really heavily utilized vehicle, you know, usually it'll be five to seven years with, you know, with the first owner. And a lot of the vehicles have like a second life uh, where they get sold to a second tier operator, for example. So in the case of diesel, usually that's a major engine rebuild at the end of that first life. So what we're trying to do is emulate the diesel vehicle use case as close as possible. In our case, we've designed these fuel cells for these heavy-duty applications. And we expect, you know, the fuel cells we're deploying now, we expect a fifteen to 20,000-hour lifetime out of them. And we believe that in the next couple of years that this becomes a Twenty-five to 30,000 hour expectation. But definitely it is a different approach to go after, as I said before, designing and building a fuel cell for the high utilization heavy mobility versus 
designing and building a fuel cell for a passenger car application. And you have a different means of making that viable. You make it such large volume in the passenger cars, as Toyota have stated publicly, you know, we just change them out. They're cheap enough that we can do it. We've obviously come from the other approach where you do everything you can to make it live as long as possible that you don't have to change them. Now, the nice thing about fuel cells, obviously, and has as some of the industry participants like Ballard you mentioned, um, you know, they've explained to people about the, this idea that a fuel cell is a cradle-to-cradle technology, right? You can, you know, you can recapture the platinum, you can recycle all the materials in there, you know, you don't get to a, a situation where you have a substantial waste issue, and that waste is not only in terms of disposal, but it's also in terms of loss of value. So with a fuel cell, you obviously have this opportunity of, of refurbishing, reusing, and so you've got a cradle-to-cradle uh, technology. And, and we think that that's highly valuable over time because if you think about it, then what you've got is you've got a, a, an engine asset, if you like, in the vehicle in the form of the fuel cell, which is a bit like an aircraft engine. You can take it out, put a different one in, and, and it's the vehicle is back to being a new vehicle, like a recertified plane engine, right? And then the engine is refurbished and put into another vehicle. So, you know, when you go and buy an aircraft, you often don't buy the engines. You just lease them from one of the big engine companies and they keep that they replace them to, so that you've always got a certified engine on the wing, right? So we believe that the value in that is is the fact that the depreciation you need to charge through the life of that, you know, fuel cell in operation is essentially the value of the refurbishment of the fuel cell. It's not the value of the build from the ground for the fuel cell because you are able to refurbish a fuel cell in, for example, a leased truck that's running, you know, doing more than a million kilometers, for example, if you need to replace it. So it, it really creates an interesting opportunity to, to have models that um, maximize the benefit of the nature of fuel cells, which can be, you know, very much reused. And we think that some of those things are an enabler of attractive economics because you don't have to buy a whole new fuel cell from the ground up if you need it. You need to refurbish a fuel cell for a, a next life on a vehicle, for example. All right. So, Craig, you know, the obvious question that, uh, you know, I think we could have probably asked at the beginning, but then we would have got carried away with is obviously um, the announcement that you guys are going to, to do a listing through a, a SPAC merger with Decarbonization Plus Acquisition Corp. Um, maybe you can talk to us a little bit about why you decided to go down this particular route of financing and, I guess, kind of almost uh, very much a linked question, how that listing approach through uh, acquisition merger with SPAC uh, sort of aligns with the growth strategy you have for the business. Sure. Obviously, uh, Chris, as you say, is, you know, kind of the elephant in the room with a lot of conversations we have these days um, and no problem at all to talk about the elephant. Um, having uh, come up with our concept on commercial vehicles, we had to think about the best way to resource and fund that. And we looked at private you know, placement, um, selling part of the company to investors. Um, we did bring in a little bit of money as an A round in the, in the beginning while we thought about the, long, the medium term plan, if you like, and then looked at what was the next, you know, best, the best option, the next step. And ha- after getting some advice from uh, some banks and different parties, we chose the SPAC route because in 2020, there were, you know, quite a few high quality SPAC sponsors out there who are actively looking for operating businesses in the market and especially on clean technology or, you know, EV applications or whatever. This was a space that was pretty hot and there's been plenty written about it. Um, there's probably, there was a bit of irrationality floating around amongst some of it, I think. But anyway, I think that Hyzon was able to strike a chord with 
some of the uh, investors and, and SPAC sponsors because we were bringing to market a, a well-proven capability. And it wasn't just like, for example, a new idea that was hatched on the basis of someone, you know, thinking that, that the study they just read about hydrogen was interesting and they wanted to get in the market. You know, we were trying to leverage almost 20 years of work uh, and technology development into an application. And so that struck a chord with some people and we had quite a bit of interest from some SPAC sponsors and we, you know, we entertained several and we chose one that we thought was, you know, was a good fit. And we signed an agreement in first half of February to do this merger and thereafter, you know, their ticker symbol, the DCRB ticker symbol on the NASDAQ changes to HYZN first half of next month sometime. So I don't have an exact date, but in the first half of next month, you know, Hyzon will officially be NASDAQ listed. And of course, um, that brings with it the benefits and the and the constraints and, and burdens of public ownership. But one thing for sure is that it's a great opportunity to have access to the capital we need to execute to the business plan. We will begin our life as a public company with over $550 million on the balance sheet. And so we have plans to build out facilities and, you know, hire teams and so on that will put some of that to good use. But frankly, that's a reasonable amount of capital for our plan. And we have, you know, ambitions that will see us getting to cash flow, you know, positive position within a few years and then, you know, um, within about four years. And we, we expect that we will be, you know, able to generate revenues um, somewhere close to a billion dollars here within the next three to four years um, with quite a bit of tailwind behind us as an early adopter uh, into a market that is going to, we think, enthusiastically embrace um, solutions that work well. And that's our goal. And Craig, before uh, before we let you go, I mean, building off of the, uh, building off of the, the subject of growth, uh, you guys have made some pretty uh, some pretty widely publicized announcements around uh, new facilities in Chicago and uh, and New York, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, could you talk a little bit about uh, both of those announcements and, and what you guys are building in those cases? Yeah, great, no problem, Andrew. So um, in Chicago, we have our material development center, so that's mostly MEA, frankly. So uh, the parent company uh, it has in-house uh, MEA. Uh, production capabilities uh, in China, and Hyzon will do its own MEA using this technology that was developed uh, over quite a few years. So um, large-scale MEA production will will happen in Chicago. That's um, core technology for the business, and it's something that you know this will be quite a you know secure uh, facility in terms of technology, IP protection, all the rest of it naturally. And then for uh, fuel cell stack and system assembly and for vehicle sub-assembly uh, work such as building hydrogen storage subsystems and other you know parts of the electric drive and so on that work will happen in Rochester in upstate New York and then we will ship assembly kits to our assembly partners such as Fontaine Modification in the US that's you know a truck um, builder and upfitter owned by Berkshire Hathaway and they have you know tens of thousands of truck units a year capacity to to help us to put fuel cell trucks on the road. And then we obviously also have our joint venture in Europe, um, which also will assemble vehicles um, in the Netherlands. So so that's the approach. It's materials, 
then it's subassembly, vehicle, fuel cells and other subassemblies, obviously fuel cells being the key one, the core, the heart of the vehicle. And then finally, you know, the third um, element of production is the actual vehicle assembly, which doesn't necessarily happen under that same roof. Fantastic. Well, Craig, uh, you've been extremely generous with your time. In fact, I was caught myself wondering uh, during this interview, what time is it where you are? <laughs> well, I'm in Sydney at the moment. It's 11.40 p.m. I was supposed to be back in the U.S. I've had a few little hiccups on my visa, and I'm sitting here waiting for my passport to return so that I can get back over to, to Rochester. I was going to say, Craig, are you going to be even able to get back into Australia once you leave? I mean, it seems like it's you know harder to get into Australia now than, you know, even even music festivals or exclusive nightclubs. Yeah. I mean, you know, getting into Australia is very <laughs> once you leave, are you going to come back? <laughs> I say to people, arriving in Australia uh, during COVID is like winding the clock back a couple hundred years because you arrive on your passage, you get out, and you get thrown into solitary confinement. So um, that was not a real life experience <laughs> that I recommend. <laughs> anyway, I'll be spending quite a bit of time in the US uh, in the next. Um, couple of years and, and hopefully um, sanity will prevail once once we uh, have this virus a bit more under control around the world and you'll be able to come and go from Australia, which would be quite a novel concept. Yeah, and hopefully we'll get to see one of the trucks up close and in person. Yeah, exactly. When people can travel, they can come and, you know, drive some trucks. Um, that's actually on that point. That was why we did that virtual drive day a little while ago because we were we had started hosting customers virtually like that you know with a couple of gopro cameras and whatever and we were getting strong feedback from the customers that it was actually quite a good experience so you know we're certainly no disney or no uh you know hollywood producer um but but for people to be able to you know kind of virtually sit in the cab and have the guys chatting while they're driving a truck and just experience just how quiet and smooth and all that sort of thing these are um and to see what the fuel cell looks like under the under the cab and that sort of thing hopefully it's interesting to people although Never as good as that see, touch and feel we were talking about before. You know, nice to do when we can travel again. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Craig. Really appreciate it. And, uh, Great pleasure to be here. Really a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you. This episode is brought to you by Biotech Onsite Hydrogen. We all know the transportation sector is facing increased pressure to transition to zero emission solutions. And uh, to borrow a phrase from our dear friend Patrick Malloy, this is the thing. Hydrogen provides a clear pathway to decarbonization. Biotech offers its customers turnkey solutions for hydrogen supply that enable vehicle manufacturers, transit agencies, fleet operators, and logistics organizations worldwide to adapt to climate regulations and produce hydrogen for fuel cell electric vehicles at prices that compete directly with diesel. To learn more about how Biotech can help you produce low-cost, low- or zero-carbon hydrogen, visit biotech.us today. All right, so Patrick has deemed to leave us hopefully temporarily, Chris. It seems he may rejoin us here in a bit, but let's do a few minutes before we get, before he comes back and interrupts our clear trains of thought. He's probably um, talking to the UN or someone. That's right. Some, yeah, he's just solving solving problems somewhere. Uh, us lowly mortals. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Well, what were your big takeaways? I know it's always, uh, always great to see Craig. Always nice to chat with him. Uh, it's always a fun conversation. But uh, what were the key takeaways from this conversation? Look, I mean, there's a couple of things that I think are interesting. I mean, one is the, um, it, and, you know, Patrick, I'm sure we'll talk about this too, but it is the vertical integration story that is interesting, right? This is a fuel cell manufacturer that's basically decided if we really want to move the market and we want to be able to guarantee that there is a product that customers really want, 
and that our product is a core component of, we need to be actually involved further down or maybe even further up, I'm not sure the correct terminology within the value chain itself. So that is quite interesting. You haven't really seen so many others do that. You know, so if I was thinking about Plug, Plug have typically partnered with people rather than lead it themselves. So, you know, so Plug Power worked with Universal Hydrogen to be on the aviation side. And then they partnered, I think, with Lightning Systems on the automotive as one of several. If you look at Badar, they did an announcement recently with a Canadian um, automotive parts manufacturer called Linamar for class one and class two vehicles. But again, it's, you know, Badar is coming in and supplying people like Wright Bus or Linamar or or others or Arcoda or Opter, but they're not actually going the whole way in. So this is quite interesting to see the fact that Horizon Fuel Cells said, right, well, we actually want to go into the vehicle side and we want to then create this entity, Heisen. So I think that is really interesting because it is quite different. And I wonder whether others will copy that model down the line. Um, Obviously, the financial resources are significant too. It is different game from Nikola. Right. I mean, if you think about that, and I think we can't avoid talking about that, you know, it was another SPAC listing for a hydrogen heavy goods vehicle. But the history, as Craig points out, is completely different. You know, Horizon is a company that has operated for two decades. It has clear experience in fuel cell technology, you know, and actually I think that counts for quite a lot. And it was interesting. Maybe we should have spent more time on it to sort of see where the IP distinguishes around what is the Horizon IP versus what's the Heisen IP. And I'm sure when the prospectus documents after the IPO and the listing come out, there'll be more meat for us to dig into there. Um, But, you know, people had big questions around that part of the Nikola proposition. What actually was the core underlying technology? And Heisen, I think, has that. Um, I think even Fraunhofer certified their fuel cell that sounds right. They're also notably look, I mean, just notably, there's a different, there's a difference in chairman and CEO management and personality yeah, styles. And to be honest with you, from the technical side, you know, I don't want to dive into the details of the Nicola situation, but uh, a lot of what's going on is uh, SEC related and very directly related to how Trevor Milton managed that company, right? So, and how he acted publicly. So, as we can see, just from talking to Craig, not, not just paying attention to Heizot, it's a very different style, right? And, you know, we get, that, that's maybe neither here nor there in terms of what our podcast needs to address, but um, that's a huge part of it, actually. No, um, and, and, you know, and actually there are other things within that that we probably didn't touch on that would have been interesting to talk about. So, you know, the fact that Total is an investor is quite interesting. You know, there are a number of large multinational uh, companies that they've spoken publicly about working with. Um, they have this kind of partnership type model when they go into markets, which is also quite interesting. So, you know, they have this model where in New Zealand, they're working with Hiringer Energy. They have this model where in the Netherlands, uh, they've partnered with Holthausen uh, to sort of do the vehicle assembly and actually different models in those markets. So that's quite flexible, um, you know, and I think that maybe plays a little bit to a line I really like from Craig, which was, you know, think big, but start small. You know, and so they're they're not trying to be all things to all people immediately, but they are trying to work their way through it. And indeed, if you look at the way uh, the Heisen guys have actually approached coming to market, it is looking at existing chassis initially and retrofits. So the 44 tons that they're doing at the moment in the Netherlands are retrofits of existing chassis with the Heisen fuel cell integration so that you can come to market quickly with a proposition. And then using that and that track record to build up to building a dedicated platform. 
Um, so I think that is, I think that's all really, uh, really positive. You know, I love the fact that the best-selling fuel cell electric vehicle is, uh, you know, is the little racers that they did. But that was a good, that was a good line. I enjoyed that. A good line, but they're so powerful. I mean, you know, I you cannot underestimate how powerful having this little paperweight Horizon uh, Horizon fuel cell has been on my desk to be able to show, you know, clients, investors, suppliers, policymakers, because people just don't visually understand what this technology is and how it works. And actually, it's so powerful to do that. Is that the unit you use to do your demonstration video that I think you posted a little while ago? Yeah, my YouTube 101 one. Yeah, with Proteinware, I'm outside. And, we've got, and it's amazing because it's got a little solar panel and a little fan so you can run the whole thing through. And it just makes the whole thing real, right? Um, and I think that is... I think that sort of stuff is really important. I mean, what did you feel were sort of maybe some of the other obvious points that we missed? I mean, you know, what, what were you impressed by in terms of, uh, you know, or pressed or, or even you'd have pushed maybe Craig a bit more on? No, no, no. I mean, look, I thought, you know, the question around addressing the rollout challenges, you know, typically we get the answer, chicken or the egg, which is he did talk on that. He did talk about that. He did touch on that. And that's a, you know, that's the infrastructure challenge issue. And that's something we talk about all the time. And it's hugely important, super interesting. I thought it was uh, fascinating. And I think also really pertinent that he went to that carbon zero alliance, I believe is what it's called, uh, where he's talking about, look, when you're rolling out in different markets, it's not just a matter of infrastructure. There's all sorts of regulatory and market uh, customer challenges that you confront that people don't really think about. They're obvious when you mention them. It, uh, insurance issues, uh, permitting issues, all these kinds of things that people don't think about in the big picture. But when you actually want to roll these technologies out, when you want to make this technology and these vehicles available to people in a new market, all of that needs to be sorted out. And no one company knows how to do that at the beginning of their life cycle, right? There are probably not many companies in the world that know how to handle all of those different issues in any new market no matter how old or how big that company is, right? So I think it's really interesting to point to things like permitting and, and insurance and all these regulatory hurdles that they have to hit and that there's a way for them and that they're approaching this by saying, okay, let's work with the partners who know how to do these things and let's create a vehicle, no pun intended, I guess, but create a mechanism for dealing with that when we go into different markets. I mean, just, just thinking off the top of my head, doing that in California alone, <laughs> is a nightmare, right? So this is, I thought that was interesting that they're, they're taking that head on. I'm sure they're not the only company to, to uh, look to that approach and to look to these kinds of alliances to do that. But I think that was super interesting uh, and a different answer than we normally get, which is just the infrastructure point, right? So I thought that was a highlight. No, I agree. It's really important to kind of move beyond just the sort of, you know, um, yeah, it's difficult to fuel them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it is, it's just kind of interesting. I mean, you know, uh, the waste, the waste to, um, hydrogen piece as well. I mean, we obviously touched on that in a previous episode with the guys from, um, Waste Tricity, I don't know, Waste Tricity. Powerhouse. Powerhouse, yeah, that's really going to get me in trouble because Waste Tricity was the company they acquired. But <laughs> yeah, we thank you. Yeah. Uh, no, it was, anyway, um, but, you know, it, it's it's interesting because, uh, you know, that that is very much the similar sort of story and proposition. I mean, there are quite a few companies that have been playing in the space for a little while. Um, I remember back in what bank days, there was a, and this is sort of probably typical of the weird and wonderful hydrogen world, there was a technology that had been developed in Japan for breweries 
to take uh, effluent and turn that into uh, biogas and then hydrogen and then hadn't had enough scale. So they ended up in Brazil and then couldn't raise enough money and ended up in California. So, um, <laughs> so you know, the, uh, you know and, and, and obviously there's probably millions of others that I'm not even going near that are also in that space. But, you know, I think it just kind of emphasizes the fact that there will be no one size fits all infrastructure uh, answer to how do you basically provide net zero solutions for, you know, large scale decarbonization in, in markets like the US, North America and Europe. I mean, you know, we were looking at. The Times in the UK today said that in the last 12 months, £10.8 billion has been spent on uh, battery electric um, commercial vans in the UK. You know, that is a huge number, £10.8 billion in the UK alone in 12 months spent on net zero emission vehicles. Um, you know, and they it was done. This came out of a survey that was being done by Centrica, I think. And they said that 58 percent of people had said it was driven by sustainability requirements in their business. So you start thinking about what that happens across the entire global supply chain and what that means in terms of how you know, if in 12 months you're spending that kind of money, how quickly you have to scale up that infrastructure to catch it. it it's very hard to see how you're going to be able to scale up um just using one approach is going to be a whole blend of things, some of which might make sense for 12 to 48 months, some of which might make sense for you know, 20 years, some might take a few years to make sense. It doesn't matter. But to your point, it's nice that they're flexible, at least about it. And I think that's the critical point. We talk about this a lot on the podcast, but and I think you drive this point home a lot, usually with regard to timelines and time horizons in the energy sector, generally not as much do we drive this home in the transport sector, but it remains true, right? Particularly when it comes to infrastructure, when you're talking about a, a new and, and, and uh, unique uh, fuel source, right? The timelines around the rollouts for these kinds of technologies, particularly on the infrastructure side when it comes to transport, are very long, typically, right? I mean, you can install a certain, you can install pilot uh, stations, you can install and develop a number of them in a, in a particular region or even spread out, but to get that kind of fueling infrastructure deployed across an entire market is very difficult to do on a time horizon that we typically think of. I mean, it's not going to happen in 12 months, right? It's not going to happen in 24 months. It, it takes years. And to get that to align with the vehicle manufacturer's rollout timelines, also very difficult, right? So there are a bunch of different factors at play here. And I think, uh, I think you often talk about it, but it's also something that we need to we need to come back to and realize that like making this kind of infrastructure slash vehicle rollout happen is not necessarily going to be a pretty process in terms of aligning all of those all of those different schedules, right? So I think it's a I think it's a very good point. And that does it for us today at Everything About Hydrogen. A big thank you to Craig Knight, CEO of Hyzon Motors, for joining us from the other side of the globe in the middle of the night to tell us about the incredible work he and his team at Hyzon are doing. Thank you, as always, to Patrick and Chris for their masterful co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. And as you know, we love to hear from our listeners here at Everything About Hydrogen. If you have any questions for us or our guests and would like to get in touch with us, Please send us an email at info at h2podcast.com or find us on Twitter at, at about hydrogen. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Till then, all the best from the team here at Everything About Hydrogen. Hydrogen.